A picture is worth what? A thousand words, right? A picture is worth a thousand words, and that's so true. And uh, my wife and I love to go for walks. We love our city, and uh, we were walking along the river, and we saw this the other day, and we just had to take a picture, right? You have to capture these moments uh, because how do you describe that with words? A picture is worth a thousand words. When you see it, a picture does something to our hearts and minds. It opens our eyes to something. And when Jesus preached, he would often use pictures to open up hearts to tell the truth. Jesus would communicate his message, and he would use pictures and stories uh, to make difficult messages stick. Because when Jesus would share these pictures and these word pictures and these stories, they would disarm his listeners and they would clue into what was happening. This method that Jesus would often use uh, to tell these stories and these pictures is called a parable. And a parable is a, a method of how to teach that Jesus would use often. And there's a theologian named Warren Wiersbe who would talk about a parable in three ways. He'd say a parable is first a picture where it would talk about and communicate God's truth so we could understand it. And then he said the parable is a mirror because once we have God's truth and we understand it through this picture, all of a sudden we're confronted in looking at this parable, speaking to our own hearts. We look at God's truth and it examines our soul to see where do we measure up in this picture, in this truth. It comes and becomes personal. And then finally, the parable is a window because after we see this truth and understand this truth, after we have it examine our hearts, now we can view the world the way God views it. And so Jesus would use this method of parable because it paints a picture and the listener's imagination would be used to teach something that is very, very important. And Jesus was an expert at teaching things. We are in a series called Amazed, where we're going through the book of Mark, and uh, the Bible scholars say from where we are now in Mark 12 to the rest of the book is Jesus' final week of his life leading up to the cross. And now we see in his final week leading up to the cross that Jesus starts to tell us the things that are very, very important to him, the things that are on his heart, kind of last words are important words. And so he lays out these last words as he's journeying to the cross so that we would understand. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open to Mark chapter 12, where we're going to look at the first 12 verses as we continue our series. Uh, if you're using an electronic version, I'll be in the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. If you have a paper Bible and you're new to the Bible, uh, Mark is kind of three-quarters of the way through. The second book of the New Testament, you see Matthew, and then you get to Mark. If you hit John or Acts, you've gone too far, just back up. And uh, we're going to focus on this parable that Jesus told. And the way I kind of want to do this is I'm just going to kind of go through verses at a time, verse, uh, verse by verse at a time, explain what's happening. At the end, I'm going to tie it all together. So Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12, we're going to start just by reading the very first verse, Mark chapter 12, verse 1. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, he began to speak to them in parables. And now he goes on to tell this parable. He said, a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to some tenant farmers and went away. 
So Jesus is laying out this story, this metaphor, and Jesus would often use metaphors that would resonate with his audience. And most of his audience came from a farming background. It was an agricultural culture. And so they would grab a hold of farming analogies. And so you hear Jesus talking a lot about the shepherd and the sheep and seed being sown and masters and servants and wine and wineskins. However, out of all the metaphors out there that Jesus could use, there was one that would resonate stronger than all the others. One would stick out stronger, and that was the metaphor of a vine and a vine dresser, or a vineyard and a vine dresser. And the reason that would stand out to his Jewish audience is because throughout the ages before Jesus was on earth, the Old Testament prophets would often use the analogy of vine, vine dresser, vineyard to communicate God's special covenant of love with his people. They would use it, it was like the go-to illustration for that. And so when a, a Jewish audience would hear about a parable, about a vineyard or a vine dresser, their ears would perk up. They would lean in because who doesn't want to know and hear and be reminded of God's love for them? And so that's what the audience would do as Jesus starts to unfold this story. And in this story, in this parable, he has different aspects to it. He says there's a vineyard, and the vineyard represents the people of Israel, God's chosen people. Then in this story, you have the owner, and the owner represents God. God is the owner of this vineyard. And you see that he sets it up. He uh, digs out a pit for the wine press. He builds a watchtower. He makes it fully operational. And then he gives it to these tenant farmers who are the religious leaders of the day. And so he paints and sets up this parable because he wants to communicate a truth. And after this second verse where he sets this up, given the fact it's about a vineyard and it's happening, every person in the audience who is from the Jewish background would be leaning on the edge of their chair. They'd be leaning in to hear, what is Jesus going to say next? Because this grabbed a hold of their heart. So let's continue and look at Verses 2 and 3. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. So here's what happens in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19. It says if you set up a vineyard, the first three years, all of your crops have to go to the temple. It was a way of thanking God for what you were given. And then in the fourth year, you'd give just a portion of that to the temple, and then you could keep and, and keep operating and let it become a business. And so when it says it is time, it's talking about the three years past. It's in the fourth year. It's time to collect that first fruits offering that goes to the temple. And so the owner sends, sends his servant to collect that. And the tenant farmers who are supposed to take care of this beat up this servant and to keep everything on the farm themselves. Like they think it's their own. The foreshadowing here that people would start to clue into, some of those that were sharp to how Jesus is teaching is the fact that Jesus is talking about this story and the servant is the Old Testament prophet that would go and talk to the people of Israel and speak on behalf of God. But the religious rulers who were overseeing the temple, who were overseeing the covenant of God, would kill and destroy these prophets. And they would try to make it about themselves. 
And that's where Jesus is starting to put his finger on here. They would take the fruit, which would be the glory for themselves, versus follow God's way. Let's continue and see what happens in verse 4 and 5. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, others they killed. Now is where it starts to get violent and bloody. And what we need to grab here from Jesus' story is this, what he's trying to illustrate, what he's trying to set up, what he's trying to get people to understand is God's unbelievable patience and grace with us. God's unbelievable patience and grace that the listeners hearing this story would become restless when you see all this beating and killing, they would be like, let's find these people, let's bring them to justice, let's lock them up. They would be restless to gather a group and go do that. But by thou, uh, those who are listening to Jesus will be catching on to what he's getting at. And what this is really illustrating is God's kindness, God's patience, and God's grace throughout Israel's past as Old Testament prophets would come to Israel's political and religious leaders. And time and time again, these Old Testament prophets were brutally persecuted and at times killed. And God would send another, and it happened again. And he'd send another, and it happened again. And he'd send another, and it happened again. God had this grace and this patience that we would see here in this parable where he would give humanity another chance. God persists in pursuing us. We see throughout the story of the Bible, it's a story of how God creates human beings, pursues after them. They rebel and turn away. He pursues again. They rebel and turn away. He pursues again. There's a pursuing and a persistence that's within the heart of God that we see in Jesus's parable. But what we're going to see is it doesn't always stay that way. Look in the next verses, verses 6 to 8. He, the father, the owner of the vineyard, still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What a powerful foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the cross that Jesus was weaving into this story. And you have to understand that the religious leaders were listening in, they were cluing in. People are starting to make connections of why he's talking about this. People are starting to see, I know where he's going with this. And he brings this amazing story, part of the story in where finally the owner of the vineyard sends his one and only son, thinking they will show him the respect that is necessary. They will turn the offering that was supposed to go to the temple over to him. This is my beloved son. And that word beloved in this parable brings out the drama. It gives a powerful, powerful image The word beloved here is only used two other times in the whole book of Mark. The first time it's used is when Jesus was baptized in Mark 1 where it says, a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The second time we see the word 
in the book of Mark is in the transfiguration where a voice came from the cloud, the voice of the Father, and said, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. And now Jesus telling this story, painting this picture worth a thousand words, says this owner will send his beloved Son, identifying he is the one who's in this story making the connections for people to see. The connection here is so important that God sent His Son, Jesus, whom He loves, to a world that would consistently turn away from Him, a world that would consistently fall off of His plan. God could have destroyed the farmers at this point, but He goes with a different plan. Why does God go with a different plan? Because God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This illustration shows the patience and the grace of God even when he sends his son. It also shows the supreme value and the glory of Jesus Christ, God's beloved Son. God sends His Son to those who continually ignore Him and His ways. And He's on a mission, and the mission is motivated by love. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, if you reject him, speaking of Jesus, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out, cleansing for your sin. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. Jesus showed how much God loved. He didn't just tell and say, he showed in what he did and how he lived. Amazing love and amazing grace. In verse 7, it's interesting how the father says, but, those farm, uh, but finally he said uh, to them, they will respect my son, meaning they will show deference to the person in recognition of their status. God said, I will send my son because he's my beloved son. They have to respect him but they didn't do that. Instead of respect, they killed the son and they stole what was not theirs. The listeners listening into Jesus' parable at this point would have been livid. They would have think these farmers are absolutely insane. They would think these farmers are criminally insane. They are completely out of their minds. To murder the son, owner's son and then to take over a vineyard that is not theirs, that is like unheard of crazy over the top. And so Jesus leaves them in this shocking place in this story. And then he asks a pivotal question, a key question, a question for all of us to ask as well. In verse 9, he says, what will the owner do? Given this situation, look at verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? What's God going to do in this situation? Seeing this injustice, he gave and hired these farmers. He put the care of the vineyard in their hand. He sent servant after servant. They beat and kill them. He sends his very own son 
They beat and kill him. They steal what's going on. What will the owner do? In other words, what would God do in this situation? Some might say, well, he's gracious and loving and kind, so he will go there and he'll explain it all and he'll give them one more chance and then he'll let the farmers go. And God is gracious and God is loving and God is kind, but he's also holy and just. And the next thing that's said in verse 9 would be shocking to the original listeners, but it should be shocking to us as well. In verse, second part of verse 9, what will the owner do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Did you get that? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Actually, the Christian Standard Bible kind of softens it. The word in other translations, most translations, is he will come and destroy the farmers and give the vineyard. And that word destroy in the original language is used to symbolize eternal loss or eternal torment or unending suffering. That's what Jesus is communicating here. The tenant farmers are not given grace anymore. When the owner comes, they will be destroyed, and then the vineyard is going to be handed over to others. And in the Jewish mind, listen to the story, they would be appalled because the vineyard, the covenant of Israel was theirs. It was their inheritance. And now Jesus is saying that the inheritance that was going to the people of Israel would be given to somebody else. They wouldn't be able to fathom that. That's how serious Jesus is laying. And what they don't understand is the others he's talking about was the church that would steward God's word and carry out God's redemptive plan, the gospel, to the entire world until Jesus returns again and then the new Jerusalem will be established again and the fulfilling, pro- the fulfilling prophecies about them being keepers of the vineyard would take place. And just in case they missed the fact that what he was talking about, identifying himself as the Messiah who would be bruised and beaten, who would then hold to a supreme level of authority over his kingdom, he brings a scripture to mind that they would all know. He turns to Psalm 118, which was a song that was sung in Jewish households about a Messiah who would endure suffering, about a Messiah who would be rejected, who would then come to his proper place of authority over a kingdom that could not be turned away, a kingdom that could not be stopped. Look at verse 10 and 11. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. The Messiah who would be rejected would be the Messiah who would rule and reign from a supreme position forever and ever and ever. And when Jesus Christ returns, his kingdom is going to be inaugurated. It started at the cross. It'll be completed in his return. And he will rule and reign in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever and ever. The despised and rejected stone becomes the most significant stone in the whole structure. And those listening to the story right now at that point all would get it. They know exactly what he's talking about because a picture's worth a thousand words. God will not be mocked. God will not 
be mocked. He will take his rightful place in his kingdom. Look at verse 12. They were looking for a way to arrest him. See, you've got to understand, the Pharisees at this point, they're listening to Jesus tell this story. They're clued in. They know exactly who he's talking about. They know that he is talking about us. He is saying that we are these evil farmers. He is referring to us and our ancestors. This is who he's talking to. And they are not happy because Jesus just eternally indicted them. And so they say they were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. They knew it. And so they left him and went away. See, the Pharisees heard Jesus tell this amazing story that encapsulates the world in a nutshell. He tells a story about the hope of God, how he sets up this kingdom, and how he longs to have his people know him, how he's consistently reaching out to the human race for a relationship with them, to give them a hope, to give them a life. And then they tell this story about the kindness of God, the patience and the grace of God, of how he withheld his hand instead of destroying everything. He withheld and he had kindness and patience and sent messenger after messenger to hear this story. And then it tells about the severity of God, where the time comes where the grace begins to stop, and God says he will not be mocked. He will come, and he will do justice. And then it tells about the triumph of God, how he will assume his rightful place in the headship of his kingdom, and that will be manifest throughout the world. And so they hear this, the religious leaders hear this, they put this all together, now they understand he's talking about him, they can see in their past, lining up all that happened in history, they see it laid out before them, and then what is their response? Is their response repentance? Is their response brokenness? Is their response humility? No. So they left him and went away. They left him and went away. There's nothing more tragic than a human being rejecting an eternal relationship with God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. So the summary of this whole parable is to deny Jesus as the son of God is to, in a sense, kill him. And some have been killing Jesus this way all their lives. They hear about Jesus in his ways over and over and over and over. They reject him. And this passage this morning stands as a gracious warning to us. See, we hear these hard passages and we think, man, that's fire and brimstone. That's legalism. That's bad. We shouldn't do it. We should just talk about the love and the, no, 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 no. This is grace because we hear about it in this moment this side of heaven. This is love. This is grace. This isn't legalism. This is hope. This isn't shame. This is life. This gives us what we need to carry out the way God wants us to carry out our lives. And we must respond to God while there is still time. Jesus persists. The grace comes until a person reaches death or he returns. But at that point, the grace stops. Grace does have a limit. 
It's not limitless. When we die or Christ returns, we will face God and we will have to give an account what we did with Jesus Christ. And this verse should encourage us, inspire us, convict us even by God's loving grace to give our lives to him. So I want you to take away from this a couple things. First of all, if you have rejected Jesus, reconsider him today. If you have been resistant to a relationship with God and you've heard this message over and over, let today be the day you let him in. Let today be the day you surrender your life to him. And for those of you who have done that, I have a question for you that as I dove in and studied this passage, grabbed a hold of my heart and convicted me so strongly, and now, guess what? You get to that same blessing. Do we still fear God? Or have we lost our awe of God? Do we still fear God in our worship? Do we still fear God when we look at other people who are made in his image? Do we still fear God when we look at the church or the, has the church has become this organization that we pull apart and do what we want with? Or is the church the bride of Jesus Christ that he loves? Do we fear God when we look at our own lives and realize we're created in his image And instead of cutting ourselves apart, we're supposed to embrace who we are in Christ. There's a lot of confusion out there what it means to fear God. I had it myself. Because the Bible on one hand tells us not to fear, and then the Bible on the other hand tells us to fear. It says don't fear, and then it says fear, and it gets really, really confusing. So how do we know? What are we supposed to do with this thing called the fear of God? What does it mean? And the fear of God is a deep, reverent awe of who God is. But we see different types of fear in the Bible, and there's certain fears that we're supposed to have nothing to do with, but there's this fear of God, this one fear that we are supposed to embrace and give our whole lives to. Moses spoke about this fear in Exodus 20.20. You can see the two different things here. Moses responded to the people, do not or don't be afraid, for God has come to test you. Why? So that you will fear him and will not sin. See, don't be afraid. We're not supposed to be afraid of God, but we are supposed to fear God. And it sounds like the same thing, but it's not. He's not this tyrant that we're supposed to shrink and hold back from and have all these feelings of fear, but he is the all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing God that we have to approach with a reverence and an awe. But when we do that, our hearts are opened up to this amazing God and who he is and his love for us and his power, and it causes our hearts to bow and worship and live our lives in a different way because of who he is, because of his glory, because of his majesty, because of his power, because of his awe and we need to live in that place and verses like this stories like this parables like this put us over there check this out the fear of God is something that Jesus even wanted when he was on earth in Isaiah chapter 11 3 is prophesying about the Messiah Jesus and it says and he speaking of Jesus will delight in the fear of the Lord See, Jesus knew that to fear God in this way, to have awe of him this way, brings a delight that he didn't want to walk on earth without. He wanted to delight in this awe, in this fear. There's a blessing in living in the fear of God. 
The fear of God frees us from anxieties, fears, and insecurities. Living in the free of God frees us from needing to be affirmed or needing to control or criticalness. Fear of God frees us from hating ourselves in guilt and condemnation. Fear of God protects us from becoming distracted from the things that God doesn't want us to be a part of. You see, the fear of God, the true fear of God, levels a blow to atheism. Because atheism said, if we get rid of God and we don't have to fear this being anymore, then everybody will be free and everyone will live the way they want and it'll be the greatest thing ever. And so they try to get rid of God and you know what happens? There's more anxiety, more worry, more fear than there ever, ever has been. But when you live in the fear of God and you know who he is and that he is in control and he is in check, it brings your fears and anxieties and worries and puts them at the proper place. And you know that whatever you experience in life, this awe-inspiring, all-powerful, almighty God will cover you. And then it's not about this life. It's about forever with him in paradise and ruling and reigning in his kingdom. There's an amazing little book that just... I came confused about this idea of the fear of God. I wrestled with it. I'm just being honest with you. And I read this little book by one of my all-time favorite theologians named Michael Reeves, and it's called What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? I think this is one of the most important books for the Christian walk. And I have 15 of them available at the Welcome Center. If you will really, really read it, you can grab one of those. For a suggested donation of just $5, and it's on the honor system, we're just asking you to put $5 in the offering or give $5 online. The 15 are there, first come, first serve. Only grab it if you're really going to read it, so someone else who really wants to read it can have it. If they all go, it's $7.99 at Amazon. It'd be the best $7.99 you spend in terms of your spiritual life. He explains these concepts of the fear of the Lord and what it means to walk in there. And one of his amazing quotes is this, the nature of the living God means that the fear which pleases him, God, is not this groveling, shrinking fear. He is no tyrant. It's an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent and good and true God is. That's where we're supposed to live. We live in the fear of the Lord. In this parable, as Jesus is going to the cross, he's telling the most important things he wants people to grab. And he's bringing about this idea that you have to understand who God is and live properly in that place. As some of you know, over the last three weeks, I've been involved as a pastor in heartbreaking tragedies in our city. There's been a few in the last few weeks that have just been gut-wrenching. And as a pastor, it's hard, it's heartbreaking, but it's a privilege to walk through people with pain. But when you go through that, what happens is you start to ask the question, what is life really all about? And all the little petty arguments and all the little things going on, you kind of just put on a shelf to say, what is life really all about? The wisest man that ever lived the earth was a man named Solomon. And he wrote a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. And the whole purpose of the book is to answer the question, what is life really all about? And at the end of the book, the last verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, 
He says, and the conclusion when all has been said and done is this, to fear God and keep his commandments, and this is for all of humanity. The conclusion when all is said and done is to fear God. So when we want to get down to what is life really about, what does it really matter, to live in this place that Jesus is trying to reflect, and that is the fear of God. That is when God says we are at at our absolute best. We are living the way God intended us to live at that point because there's a sweetness, a kindness, a goodness, a godliness, a faithfulness, a wisdom that marks people's lives who fear the Lord. There's a sweetness, a kindness, a goodness, a godliness, a faithfulness, you can even throw in there a courage, a wisdom that marks people's lives who live in the fear of the Lord. My prayer this week for Crossview Church is not that we would just be a people who fear the Lord, but that we would be a people who delight in fearing the Lord. That we would be a people who find our very essence and being in fearing God. That we would be a people who would carry with us the reflection of a God who is utterly amazing, astounding, who's boundless in our thoughts and we can't even wrap our minds around because of his goodness and his glory and his power. And we would delight and find our life in that place. That's something only God can do. So let's pray it happens to us. Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you... that this is grace. I thank you that this is hope. I thank you that this is love. Lord, if there's parts of our heart that have become too casual when we think of you, will you help us find our life in the honor of you? Will you help us find our life in the fear of you? God, I pray that we would be a people who would delight in the fear of the Lord because that is the place where we live as you intended us to live. And so God, by your spirit, we can't force that to happen. Would you help us as we encounter you through worship and the word and prayer? Would you help create that within us? And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.